From the book of Genesis, chapter 15, starting with verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up to the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord and credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the word of the Lord. From the letter of Paul to the Philippians, beginning with verse 17 of chapter 3. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For, as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the Christ cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. The word of the Lord. Let's stand together for the reading of our gospel. From the gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. He replied, go tell that fox. I will keep driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you who will not see me again until you say, 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Happy a lot of things today. Happy Lenting to you. <laughs> happy St. Patrick's Day, I think. Um, happy back end of spring break for some of you. Um, and uh, yeah, I uh, hope it's been a good week and hope uh, Lent is going well for you. Hope you are suffering well in this time. Um, we, are, we are in the season of Lent, and last week, our first Sunday, we looked at this idea of allegiance. Um, also, we, we might say of worship. We, we looked at the story of Jesus and how he was tempted in the wilderness, tempted in the desert, and how all of us are tempted to turn our allegiance away from God, right? So we talked about how we turn our worship and put our eyes off of God and onto other things. So um, like Jesus, um, we were tempted for our needs to be met in a different way. So we're tempted and we're afraid that our needs would not be met. We also were tempted to do something spectacular, to turn our eyes on the spectacular rather than on God. And then finally, we long for power and control. So we're tempted towards power and towards control. Today, I wanna look at what happens on the other side of temptation. What happens when we give in to temptation? When we, because we all have to recognize that not only are all of us tempted, I think we can all agree on that, that we're all tempted on a regular basis, but we also can all agree we all sin, that we all give in to that temptation regularly. Um, we fall into sin and we fall into unbelief. We are unfaithful. Paul says in Romans, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is something that all of us do. And so our question today is, what is God's posture when we fall away? What does God look at us with? How does God see us when we fall away? What is his posture? What is his movement towards us when we are unfaithful? And one of the things we have to wrestle with in this is doubt, okay? Now we talk about doubt more here than probably a lot of churches that you've been to. And doubt is part of the Christian faith, okay? Let me just say that. Doubt is part, I wanna say it's even necessary to the Christian faith. Why? Because faith is not certainty. Faith and certainty are not the same thing, okay? If it was, we wouldn't say that you need to have faith if something's certain, it's easy <laughs> to understand. Faith involves risk. It involves trust. It involves a step. And part of the reality of trust is this question. What if God is not who he says he is? That question. What if God is not who he says he is? Or what if God doesn't have my best interest in mind? It's a question we all ask. It's part of our faith. We have to ask that question. Throughout the history of our church here and throughout the time I've been in ministry, I have met a lot of people. I guess it's just the nature of the kind of ministry that we've been in. But I've met a lot of people who have doubted significantly and also who have admitted that doubt and then who also have given up on their faith met a lot of people on this journey. In fact, our church sometimes, for some people, ends up being their last stop on the way out of Christianity. Not because of anything that we've done, but just because people are looking for a safe place. They're wrestling, they're struggling. And so, so we've met a lot of these people. And um, part of the reason why a lot of people I've met leave the faith is because they couldn't reconcile with doubt. And doubt does lead some to unbelief. That happens. 
Because of this, you can see why some Christians are scared to death of doubt because they've seen some stories where doubt leads to unbelief. So they're scared. We don't want that. We, so what we tend to do as Christians is we demonize doubt. There's a whole generation of Christian parents who tried to build strong walls around their children to protect them from the outside world, right? To even to give them enough answers, enough strong stock answers so that when they get in an argument, they can own the atheists, right? Like that's what we try to do. Uh, That's how we're often taught. But think about it though. Spirituality is the only area of life that we feel like we have to have 100% certainty, at least in these circles that I'm talking about. In every area of life, we trust even when we don't have certainty. So I'll give you an example. Like when I get on an airplane, I'm playing the odds, right? Like I'm not 100% certain that I'm going to get my des- to my destination, right? I mean, you can't be. But there's enough trust and enough security and enough safety in this that I feel like I can trust it. But let aside like the pilots and airplane and all that kind of stuff. When I get in my car, <laughs> I'm relatively sure I'm going to get where I need to go but I'm playing the odds. When I step outside my door, (laughs) I am relatively sure my plan is going to go the way it's going to go, but I don't have 100% certainty. But yet somehow we think in our faith, we have to have certainty, right? Um, And here's the thing, not all doubt leads to unbelief. We get scared of doubt, and so because we think we've seen the stories where it might lead to unbelief, but many of us, have chosen to continue to walk in our faith in the midst of doubt. We have chosen and we actually believe that our faith and our relationship with God has been stronger through it and even because of it. God meets us in the midst of our doubt. Why? Because faith is more about relationship than it is about certainty. Faith is more about trust than it is about certainty. And that's what really matters. Faith is not intellectual assent. I've met enough people that they're saying, well, I can't call myself a Christian yet because when we say the creed, there's a few of those things that I'm not sure about yet and make me uncomfortable. I don't know that I fully believe all those things. But faith is not intellectual assent. Of course, we hope that that comes along with it in time, but faith is trusting God, no matter where we're at on the intellectual spectrum. We serve a God who is not afraid of our doubt. God is not afraid of your doubt. He meets us in the midst of doubt. Our Old Testament story speaks to this today. It's a profound story where God makes a covenant with Abram. And God has spoken to Abram before, but Abram's never spoken back before. This is the first time Abram speaks back to God. And here God says, do not be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield and your very great reward. And here's how Abram responds. Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? In other words, you promised me that there'd be a great nation that would come from me. If you remember that few chapters before that Abram was promised that a great nation would come from him. And here I stand childless. The exact language that he uses, he says, my slave is my heir because I don't have any kids. These are the first words Abram ever says to God. They are words of doubt. They're words of questioning God's character and God's promise. Abram, who in the New Testament is lauded for his great faith, the very beginning of his journey with God begins in doubt. 
will you do this for me? You, you haven't done this for me. Is your character really sure? Is it true? And God responds by telling him, I'm going to give you children more numerous than the stars. At this point, when God paints this picture for him, Abram does believe. And the passage says it was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, even when he could not see, when there was, when there was no certainty, Abram trusted out of relationship what God said. He was able to at least continue that relationship and trust it, even in the midst of uncertainty. And part of the important elements of this is that um, Abram's doubt is in the context of relationship. He doubts as he's walking in relationship with God. God didn't freak out about Abram's doubt. In fact, he gives him the assurance that he needs, but it's part of the process. It's part of the process of the promise is this doubt. Doubt is part of the deal. And then the language about the stars here doesn't just mean that Abram's gonna have a lot of descendants and they're gonna be numerous, that's part of it, but it also means that they will be a light to the world. The stars reflect light, right? They would be a light. And also the stars in the ancient world were seen as the governors of the world. It was like they ruled the world. So Abram's descendants would rule and govern the world. God's people reflect and show leadership in the world. That's what he's saying here. And then God reminds him of his story. He says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land and to take possession of it. He reminds him of his story and his calling. But then as you keep reading, what happens? Abram doubts again. <laughs> so he doubts at first, and then he's given this reassurance and painted this picture, and it believes and credits righteousness. And then at that point, he reminds him of his story and his calling, and then he doubts again. Abram's faith is not passive. Abram is like wrestling with God. <laughs> it's like he's fighting with God in the midst of his doubt. Abram says, sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? Tell me, give me proof that I'm gonna be able to gain possession of this. And then God does something spectacular and gross, okay? If you keep reading this. Um, so hang with me here. God tells Abram to bring him a heifer, a goat, and a ram, okay, these three animals. And Abram cuts them all in two and he arranges the different sides on each side. So if you know this picture, I'm sorry if you're queasy, the blood would then kind of run down in the middle and it would create like a blood path or a blood line is what it was sometimes called. Um, and I know this is weird, but this is how Abram knew what to do. It was because this is how covenants were made in the ancient world. You would take these animals, you would cut them in half, and then both parties would walk through the bloodline. And what you're doing is you're making a promise. You're saying, if I don't fulfill my part of the covenant, I'm going to die. I'm going to give up my life. Covenants were serious business. This isn't like a prenuptial agreement or something, right? Like this is like really like life and death kind of stuff that's going on here. Um, so, Abram is assuming that he and God are making this covenant together. So he's preparing it. Abram's invited to prepare all of these kind of things and put all these things together. And then he's assuming that they're both gonna walk through the bloodline at this point. But something interesting happens. Abram falls asleep. God puts him to sleep, okay? And then God makes the covenant with him to give the land to his people. 
And when the sun had set and darkness has fallen, we see a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch appeared and passed through the, pe- the pieces. Okay, so if you picture this, Abram's asleep. He falls asleep and he's in deep sleep. It's really, really dark. And then this flaming torch <laughs> goes through the blood path. And then this fire pot goes through the blood path. Okay, really interesting, creepy stuff. But think about this. God walks through the bloodline in two forms, as a smoking fire pot and as a blazing torch. Why is this significant? Abram never walks through the blood path. In fact, Abram's asleep the whole time. In a normal ceremony, both parties would walk through the bloodline. In this one, God walks through it twice, both for his side of the deal and for Abram's side of the deal. God is promising Abram the blessing, but he's taking all the risk upon himself, both sides. If either party fails to live up to the covenant, God will take the curse upon himself, he's saying. God put himself on the line. God writes the covenant in blood. One of the things that's so amazing about our God is that he knows that we fail. He knows that we mess up. He knows that we often struggle to believe in him. And yet he has still made covenant with us. Notice this language of darkness. It says that the world has gone dark. And that is like imagery that it's gone dark because of sin. And God walks through the covenant in light as a, as a torch and as a fire pot. We are called to live in faithfulness, not because of our own merit, not because of anything that we've done or because of our certainty, but because of God's great faithfulness. This is his story. It's not our story. That's one of the things that we celebrate in Lent. The reality of Lent is not to have a perfect Lent, okay? I I know some that they really wanna be overachievers during Lent, right? And so it's, I'm gonna give up this thing, this thing, this thing, and this thing, and gosh darn it, if they can get through all 40 days, they're gonna give themselves a mental gold star and they'll make it through, right? But the goal is not to have a perfect Lent. In fact, I think sometimes we learn more about Lent when we mess up and when we forget, oh gosh, I was fasting that thing and I accidentally just ate it or, you know. Um, We learn those things because we learn that we are, imperfect, that we falter, that we mess up. It's to realize, this season is to realize how hard it is to let go of some of the things that are important to us, even if some of those things are silly. Sometimes we may go, wow, that it is ridiculous that I can't go very long without checking Facebook. <laughs> some of us are going, What? Seriously? I don't know about you, but I get these. It's usually on Sunday mornings. My phone gives me these weekly screen time alerts, right? And, uh, and so I, I get these, and this morning I saw it, and it said, your screen time is up 9% from last week. And I'm like, you're kidding me. And then I don't want to click on, I don't want to see how many, how many hours I was on my screen this week, right? But still, but there's, so it's this recognizing, gosh, we often go after these things that are counterfeits to God. And yet, even in our missteps, God is faithful. And he takes the consequences of evil and death upon himself for us. When we look at doubt, it's often tempting for us, and I've seen both in Christianity, to either demonize doubt or to celebrate doubt. I've seen both sides of that. God, in the story with Abram, doesn't do either of those things. 
He doesn't go, way to go, Abram, for questioning me and doubting me, right? But he also doesn't go, oh, you, should better, you better trust me. You should have trusted better in this. No, he meets Abram in the midst of his doubt in relationship. As we seek to live faithful lives, we do so in full view that it is only because of him that we are able to do so. In Lent, we are aware of our brokenness and our sinfulness. But Lent is also about anticipation. We are waiting for Easter because we know that Easter is coming. Paul tells the Philippians that there are a lot of people who live as enemies of the cross of Christ. And and this stirs Paul. This um, worries Paul. In fact, it says it brings him to tears. He says, these people, their God is their belly and their glory is their shame. In other words, they chase after things that may bring them glory in this life or comfort in this life, but ultimately it leads to shame. And I think if we're honest, this is all of us at times. How many times do we focus on earthly things that we make our God our bellies or what brings us comfort or what brings us glory in this life? Now, it's important that we understand a little bit of the backstory of what's going on with Paul and his letter to the Philippians. Some of you love history stuff. Some of you, this is where you zone out. I'm gonna ask you to just hang with me here for just a little bit. So in Philippi, what's going on, it's the city of Philippi and a hundred years before Paul got there. Okay, so a hundred years before Paul, in 42 BC, Philippi was the site of one of the greatest battles in the Roman civil war. Okay, so there's a Roman civil war going on. One of the greatest battles was in Philippi and it took place right after the death of Julius Caesar. So Julius Caesar was the emperor and then he died. And then there's like this fight over who's gonna be the next emperor, who's gonna rule the empire. So the two generals who won the battle were Antony and Octavian, okay? And they found themselves after winning the battle in Northern Greece near Philippi with a ton of soldiers and nothing for these soldiers to do. So you've got like thousands and thousands of soldiers in this little place. And what are we gonna do with these soldiers now that the war is over? Okay, like where are we going to go? And they can't just send them back to the capital to Rome because having thousands of soldiers come back to Rome would feel overwhelming and probably dangerous. So basically what they did is they said, here, you guys take Philippi and you can rule Philippi and turn it into a Roman colony. So he gave all these thousands of soldiers Philippi to rule. Now there were already people living there. There were already natives who were there and had been conquered, but now these people own the land. So this city is a mix of descendants from the Roman colonists, also native Greeks, And some of these native Greeks benefited from the Roman occupation, so they saw their life improve, and some of them didn't. We can't help but see all kinds of parallels today in our city with gentrification, right? That we have some economic boom in our city, and there are some who have lived here for generations, and they're seeing, oh, this is cool, our city's getting better, and I'm seeing some economic opportunity. And then there are some that it's actually just becoming more of a haves and a have-nots, right? Just becoming stronger. We can also see this in our country right now. We've had economic booms, but we've also seen an incredible separation of wealth, haven't we? We see the rich getting richer and the poor often getting poorer, even in a good economy, right? And yet Philippi was easily accessible from Rome and the two cities stayed connected. So Philippi became a colony of Rome. And the main religion of Philippi was the imperial cult, 
or the worship of the emperor. So the emperor was God. In verse 20, this is why this is significant. In verse 20, Paul says, we are citizens of a new kingdom, a different kingdom. Just as Philippi was a colony of Rome, so we, the church, here and now, are a colony of heaven. The church is the colony of heaven. So that means that we have a responsibility and we pray this in the Lord's prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. On this colony of heaven that we call the church as it is in heaven. Your will be done. May the church be heaven on earth for the world. Heaven meets earth. That'd be a great tagline for a church. And we trust in something different. We don't trust in ourselves but in the Lord Jesus Christ, who Paul says will one day transform our bodies. So we live a colony of heaven in anticipation of that day when the rule of heaven will fully reign here. I'm gonna jump to another metaphor and there's a risk of mixing metaphors here, but, but I think this may be helpful. Those of you who in our community, we have some who are expecting children and some who have in the past expected children and you know that before you have a child, you begin to live in the rhythm of parenting before the child comes. So you begin to kind of change your behavior patterns and your life pattern. You can't be fully prepared, but you begin to kind of prepare for that. But even more than just preparing, you decide to live differently. You might prepare your bodies for a different sleep schedule. Again, you'll never fully prepare for that but you might prepare your bodies for a different sleep schedule. You prepare the nursery for it to be lived in. Part of the whole idea of parental leave, right, um, from work is you get acclimated to rhythms, right? You get in the rhythms of life. The church, we are an Easter people. So we live in light of the resurrection of Jesus. And what that means is that there's one day we're gonna see Easter in fullness, we're gonna see a full resurrection of all of God's people. We're gonna see the world made right. We'll see our bodies restored. Faith, hope, and love will remain. The world will be right. And the reason why Christians live the way we do is we are living with our eyes focused on that world, not just on this world. We're keeping our eyes focused on how things will be, not things as they are. Just a little bit of a tangent here. Maybe growing up in church, when you heard this kind of language, it was one day we're gonna go somewhere else. So when I get my eyes fixed on heaven, it's fixed on where my soul's gonna go and not on physicality. I think the biblical story is not as much about places as much as it is about time, if that makes sense. So when we focus on what's to come, when we focus on heaven, when we get our eyes set on heavenly things, it's one day this world will be restored heaven will fully be realized on earth. So we fix our lives on that future day, not just on what's going on right now. And that means that we live differently. For the Philippians, that meant that their primary loyalty is to Christ, not to Caesar. They live differently. For us, we may ask, who has our allegiance in the world? What have we given our life to? In Christ, God's new world has broken into this world. Christians say this. They say, we say that the world as it is, with mass shootings and poverty and racism and war and addiction, is not all that there is. 
We know that because of what God has done in the cross and the resurrection, a new world is coming. And we are the signs of that new world now. That means that in the midst of mass shootings, the church stands and grieves with the victims, that we live out justice and that we forgive. We say the world is not right, but there will come a day when it is right and we're gonna start living that way now. That means in the midst of poverty, we join God in the meeting of basic human need. In the midst of racism, we stand a people unified by a different story. In the midst of a violent society, we are peacemakers. And in the midst of addiction, we live out freedom, vulnerability, and community. It's in this anticipation that we stand firm. In our gospel text, Jesus is grieving. And why is he grieving? Well, he's grieving for Jerusalem. And the story is really funny here. At the very beginning, the Pharisees warn Jesus to get away from Galilee. They say, Jesus, you need to get away from Galilee because Herod's going to kill you. And the Pharisees are usually Jesus's opponents. So this is really interesting that they're like looking out for his best interest. We don't know exactly why. They show sympathy for him. And Jesus's response is this. He says, you go tell that fox something for me. Okay, so he calls Herod a fox. Tell him that I'm busy right now. I'm, okay, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but I'm healing and casting out demons. I need to finish my work and then I'm gonna go to Jerusalem. So Jesus is kind of mocking Herod. Basically, tell Herod that I'm busy doing all the things he doesn't like me doing, okay? Why well, call him a fox? Well, a fox is a predator, okay? A cute little predator, but a predator. And you've heard the old phrase about the fox in the hen house, right? That's kind of what's going on here. Herod was only in the position that he was in as governor of Galilee because Rome saw his father and thought that he would be a good puppet king for them. And so he put them in place, that he was a good thug, good mafia kind of guy and, and put him in charge of everything for them as a puppet king. And Jesus is calling him out and saying, you're not the real king of the Jews. You're not the real governor. You're a fraud and you're a predator leading people astray. And Jesus says, I'm gonna finish my work here and then I will leave and go to Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem was a place of great significance for the people of Israel. It was the place where the temple resided. So that's where God's house was, where God lived, okay? It was believed in the ancient world that the closer you were to the temple, the closer you were to God himself. So the reason why this was such good news to the world and why it was so different was the Israelites said, our God actually lives in a house here. Okay, in our neighborhood. And Jesus knows his destiny. He knows he will eventually die at the hand of rulers, but it will be in Jerusalem, not in Galilee. And Jesus grieves because the people who live in Jerusalem are the people who kill the prophets. They are the ones who are the most oriented away from God. Okay? And Jesus longs. He says this, how often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and yet you are not willing. God grieves for those who reject him. Our God is like a mother who longs for her children who have gone astray. I think the parent metaphor is so helpful here. Um, this week, Lucy was incredibly sick. So those of you that were here last Sunday, we didn't know last Sunday that she wasn't feeling well. And she 
Um, you guys could just see, those of you that were here, um, were not, she wasn't really herself. So after service, she just went over to that couch and took my, my coat and laid down and just fell asleep, which is not like Lucy at all, okay? And, uh, and so, and then we found out right after that she had a really high fever. Um, we actually had to take her uh, to the ER at one point because she had 105 fever. Like it was just really, um, really high. And, and they said she had just a virus and that we just had to let it pass. And it seemed like it was fine and it was okay after a couple days. And so we had planned a short family vacation. So we went on and just decided to go ahead and do that. And it thought she was probably feeling better. Well, then she got worse. So on our vacation, she was going back and forth from enjoying it to, okay, now I'm just going to sleep all the time, <laughs> back and forth and back and forth. Um, one of the things that was so hard, those of you that have kids know this, is to try to get her to take her medicine and to eat. Okay, so hard. She refused. We tried multiple flavors of medicine. I went from drugstore to drugstore. Bubble gum didn't work. So we'll try grape. It doesn't work. So orange doesn't work. All right, cherry kind of works, but not really. Maybe go back to bubble gum. You know, we try the whole thing. You don't need to know all that stuff. But at one point, Lucy was so delirious and her fever was so high that she just wanted to stay where she was no matter how uncomfortable it was. She just didn't want to move. So we went to visit my grandma and we were supposed to have lunch with her and Lucy couldn't leave the car. So I had to go in and have lunch with my grandma by myself. She finally got into grandma's apartment just to say hi to her, laid down on her floor and didn't wanna leave. <laughs> and then the worst was on the way back, we stopped at Starbucks to go to the bathroom. And Lucy went into the bathroom and she pinned herself behind the sink and says, I don't wanna leave. <laughs> Find the sink. And then she said, <laughs> the first part was she said, don't take me. And a child yelling that in public is just not really helpful, you know? Um, it's so hard as a parent to force your child to do something when they're not feeling well. So hard. And yet we keep reminding her as we, as we go, you have to leave. Daddy's going to have to pick you up physically and get you out. I have to get this medicine in your body. We keep telling her, we love you. We're doing this because we love you. We love you. We want you to feel better. We do this because we love you. This is going to make you better. Sometimes we had to give her space. Sometimes we had to force her. Sometimes we had to woo her. And I just couldn't help but think this struggle is kind of what God experiences with me. Oh, how I long you would just come to me. It would be so better for you. God wants our healing. That's what he wants. He grieves our sin, not because he's a passive aggressive parent groaning, you don't call me enough, right? But because he loves us. He has brought grace to us, and that grace is the very thing we often reject. And this image of the hen and her chicks is poignant. It's actually the image of a farmyard fire. So um, chickens have this really unique, hens have this really unique um, thing in them. The, the hen in this image is covering her chicks in order to protect them. So when there was a fire in a farm, a hen, and I'm sure they still do this today, would cover her chicks to protect them. And when the fire has run its course, you'll go into the farm and you'll see a dead hen, scorched and blackened with live chicks underneath her. That's the image that Jesus is giving here. Jesus is pointing to his self-sacrificial death that's about to come. Jesus takes the judgment upon himself 
Once again, like with Abram's covenant, this is who our God is. He's the God who steps in on our behalf. He takes the result of our unfaithfulness upon himself. He longs for us to come near to him, to know that great love and to not run away. So as we close, um, one of the questions today is what happens when we doubt? What happens when we let go of faith altogether? What happens when we fail? Well, I think the first thing that we have to remember is that our faith is not built upon our ability to be faithful. Being a Christian is not about our ability to hold on to Christianity, okay? Being a Christian is first and foremost about the faithfulness of God. It's about the one who walked through the bloodline for us and who takes on the farmyard fire. God responds to our doubt with his faithfulness, with his presence. He is with us even when we cannot see. So that's the first thing. And secondly, God grieves for us when we go astray. He knows this isn't best for us. He knows that the best life is lived in him. It's not a loving parent who, if a child says, no, I refuse to take my medicine, just goes, fine, we'll just see what happens. <laughs> no, that's not a loving parent, right? This is a God who grieves, who longs and says, says please, I, I desire for you to come near to me. And finally, the third thing, God calls us into a new citizenship as the church, a better story. During Lent, as we are aware of our failure, we also live in anticipation of Easter. You hear me use this language a lot, but the church is a garden of the resurrection in a country of death. We are a garden of the resurrection in a country of death. May we stand firm and fix our eyes on the one who is faithful, the mother who protects. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your self-giving love for us. That our faith is not based on our ability to do a bunch of things, but it's based on your faithfulness towards us. Lord, today we come in repentance, but our repentance is not in shame. Our repentance is because we know that you have the better way for us, that you desire that we would be close to you, that you desire health and wholeness and healing for us. So Lord, help us to recognize those places that are not healthy, those places where we're just little chicks that are scattering in the midst of a fire and help us to find you and to know you as you found us. We trust you and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen.